Let me ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and we will read the third account of what has just been read to us by Nathan. I appreciate Nathan pointing out some of the unique contributions that Matthew and John made to the composite story of what happened on this occasion. I'm going to read for us very quickly verses 45 through 56. I I should be as responsible as Nathan was just to tell you that in case you're using a pew Bible and that's helpful to you, this is on page 842. Immediately he made his disciples. Notice he made his disciples. Some translations say he constrained his disciples. This wasn't what they really wanted to do. They didn't want to leave their master, especially to cross the treacherous, the sometimes treacherous Sea of Galilee alone. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, which is very close, by the way, to Capernaum while he dismissed the crowd. In other words, fellas, you get in a boat, go to the other side, I'm going to dismiss the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway Painfully, they were just—they were just having a terrible time to get getting across the lake. They were making some headway, but so small. They'd already been in the boat for hours now. Some estimate six, seven hours. Here's the reason: for the wind was against them. Mark puts it a little uh, less—I um, guess—less graphically than what we just heard from Matthew's account and John's account. There was a very strong wind. It wasn't a storm like the storm that we've already studied where Jesus calmed it, but it was stormy. It was tempestuous, to use that old word. There was a tempest on the sea. Uh, The water was beating against the boat. The waves were very, very choppy. I'm just going to make an observation since it comes to my mind. I'm so thankful for what Dwayne and Kimberly do with regard to the bulletin. I didn't ask them to do this. I never asked them to do this. And they found a picture um, that helps us imagine the Lord Jesus. Probably it was much darker than this picture shows, but, you know, if they made a dark picture, it wouldn't be a picture. <laughs> this was in the middle of the night. This was somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., The water was probably much rougher than this, but it gives you an image of someone sinking. So Mark puts it um, not quite so graphically. They were struggling to make headway. And about the fourth watch, I'm in verse 48, he came to them walking on the sea. Now we've read that so many times, we just stopped to think about this minute. You ever seen anybody walk on water? Has anyone ever, besides our Savior and the Lord Jesus, I mean, and Peter, walked on water? You know, you you could hardly imagine walking on a glassy lake, completely smooth. How much harder would it be to walk on a rough lake? Waves are choppy. No problem, because uh, all of the elements are the same to the Maker. Christ is 
also attributed to being involved with creation. No problem. He walks on it as if it was pavement. He walks on it as if it were a sidewalk. And then there's something interesting in verse 48. It says he meant to pass by them. This is a perplexing statement, and it's caused a great deal of discussion and even difference of opinion. Um, it, it may mean that he wanted them to think that he was going to walk by them, but he wanted to see if, in fact, they would say, No, Jesus, come, once they figured out who it was. Don't do that. There were times when Jesus left an impression. Uh, we're told in Luke 24 that when he was walking to, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he, he let them believe that he was planning to go further, but... Uh, he wasn't really. It's difficult to say for sure. Maybe I'll comment a little more on that in a moment. I hope this uh, running commentary is not distracting. Verse 49, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Literally, they screamed. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately... He spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Literally, ego me. I am. Literally, that's what he said. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Why were they astounded? They shouldn't have been astounded. More about that in a moment. Here's why. For they did not understand about the loaves. The loaves? Why didn't Mark say, for they did not understand about the last time they were in a storm and Jesus calmed the storm? Well, there's something very significant about what he had just done that evening. And they failed to understand. More about that in a few minutes. And the reason they failed to understand is the last part of verse 52, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand. Their hearts were hardened. Verse 53, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages, cities or countryside they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as many as many as touched it if a hundred touched it, then this happened to a hundred people. If twenty-five touched it, then this happened to twenty-five people. Whoever touched it, as many as touched the fringe of his garment, were made well. Now, what we have in the passage that I've just read for you are two things. First of all, we have Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee, coming to comfort and help his exhausted and fearful disciples who were making very, very poor headway, who were struggling in their little boat against the strong winds and the turbulent water. And by the way, uh, this would be a trivia question. It would be interesting to take time to see how you'd answer it. How many, how many miracles took place on this, in this event? 
You know more than one for sure, but if you listen carefully and thought about it, there's no less than four. Number one, he walked on the sea. That's a miracle. Number two, he enabled Peter to walk on the sea. That's a miracle. Number three, the second he got in the boat, the wind stopped. And number four, the second he got in the boat, they were at shore. And the fact is, they were in the middle of the lake when he got there. Four miracles took place. And the second thing we have in our passage is Jesus, upon arriving on the other side of the sea, that would be on the west side of the sea, we have an account of him healing probably hundreds of sick people throughout the region of Gennesaret. The reason I would suggest probably hundreds is because we're told that they brought to him sick people on pallets from the villages, from cities, from the countryside, and in the marketplaces. And these people begged that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And and in so doing, as I've pointed out, they were all healed. That's what we have in just these few verses, verses 45 through 65. Now, what is the big picture? I want to deal with the big picture first, and then I'm going to come to some spiritual lessons. (coughs) Excuse me. The big picture we have here is Christ giving further evidence or proof that the kingdom of God prophesied in the Old Testament had arrived and that he himself indeed was the king. More proof, more evidence in these miracles. Now he's been demonstrating his sovereign authority in all of the chapters that we've studied together thus far. We've seen his sovereign authority over demons, over disease, over what I'm going to call damnation, just to keep some D's working here, because when he healed the paralytic, he said, your sins are forgiven. You will not be damned now. In a sense, he, he delivered him sovereignly from damnation by forgiving him of his sins, and you will be delivered sovereignly from your damnation if your sins are forgiven. But he also showed his sovereign authority over death itself. Remember when he raised the daughter of Jairus. And now in our text today... We see him sovereign over danger. He's sovereign over the whole spiritual realm. He's sovereign over the whole physical realm. But again, what is the big picture? What's really going on here? Well, he's been presenting himself, as as I said last week, as the greater than Moses deliverer. Moses was a deliverer. Moses was told that a greater deliverer would come. He is that greater deliverer. He was the one who was delivering his people from a greater bondage than the bondage of Egypt. He was the one who was leading his people out of a greater exodus than the exodus from Egypt. He was the one who was constituting a greater Israel. And we just saw last week that he miraculously fed his followers in the wilderness. Moses was instrumental in getting the children of Israel manna. Jesus made bread. He multiplied bread and fish for them. And furthermore, he told them that he was himself the bread of life. And he told his hearers that anyone could feast upon him by faith. He said that the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And in John 6, he said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Christ was presenting himself as the greater than Moses, but also, as I said last week, as the greater than David, the shepherd king, who was gathering his flock and feeding his sheep. He was establishing his kingdom. He was constituting the new Israel. That's the big picture. See this. 
Appreciate this. Don't just get hung up on the individual miracles that he did. That's what's happening in all of these chapters. Last week we saw it, and this morning we see it again in verses 45 through 56. But what I want you to understand is that, and appreciate, is that the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus was now establishing, which was in a sense present and developing, this kingdom of grace was being founded upon, would be founded upon, and would rest upon an atonement that he was going to make for sin. Very important for us to appreciate that. God can't have an unholy nation. God cannot have an unholy kingdom. God cannot have an intimate fellowship with creatures who have not been delivered from the penalty of sin. God cannot have communion with sinners who haven't been justified. Our sins must be paid for. God's wrath must be satisfied or propitiated. His people must have a perfect righteousness. A ransom for our sins must be paid. No kingdom can be established by our Savior that does not rest upon this foundation of an atonement for sin. And all that we see Him doing in reversing the effects of the fall, and I've used that expression several times with regard to these miracles. These miracles were parabolic. That is, they were instructing. They were teaching. They were pointing to something more real, more significant than just the body. All of this reversing of the effects of the fall, healing the diseased, raising the dead, subduing violent nature. Here we have a storm asserting His sovereignty over Satan. All of these things was rooted in and founded upon His soon-to-come atonement on the cross, His death on the cross. And that all may sound like just a bunch of theology to you, but it's true theology, and let me help you see how practical it is. If you and I, gathered here this morning, are ever to find entrance into this kingdom... Not only do we need the moral transformation that's brought about by the new birth, but even more importantly, in a sense, in a more foundational way, we need a payment for our sins. We need a perfect righteousness to be right with this God. And I want to ask you a question right now before I proceed. Do you have that? Do you have a payment for your sins? Do you have a perfect righteousness from God, which comes by faith through Christ. I want to invite those of you who are unconverted to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ right now for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to invite those of you who are unconverted and lost and have no payment for your sins to come to the Lord Jesus Christ immediately. Right now, by faith, lay hold of Him. Call upon Him. He doesn't have to hear vibrations created by your larynx. He needs to hear the language of your soul. Jesus, I need a Savior. I need you to pay for my sins. I need your payment. I need your righteousness. I'm hellbound. I deserve to go to hell. God, save me. Do that right now and be saved. That's what I urge you to do. Now, that's the big picture, and I wanted to 
I wanted to lay that foundation. I didn't want to get it out of the way because it's not really that important. It's not really what my heart is about. I wanted to treat it first because that's the biggest thing that's happening in Mark chapter 6 in the passage that we're doing now. Jesus, again, is asserting His sovereign authority. He's establishing His kingdom, but He's headed for a cross. Because His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. He makes His people actually righteous, and He imputes to them a perfect righteousness through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to do one other thing. I want to go ahead and deal with verses 53 through 56 first. And then I want to come back to uh, lessons on faith. I want to come back to the subject of deep water, shallow faith, bad combo. Notice with me um, verses 53 through 56 once again. I just want to point out three things very quickly. The first thing I want to point out is that obviously people seem to care more for their bodies than their souls. Did you notice that? These people are frantically hurrying around because they don't know how long Jesus is going to be there. The moment they, the word spread that Jesus was back on that side of the lake, people were running around hastily, almost frantically, trying to get their sick people to Jesus. And I, I submit that probably he saw hundreds right there in that region of Gennesaret. But I don't see a word in verses 53 through 56 about people seeking forgiveness from sins. you all see anything there? I don't even see Jesus preaching or teaching. I'm not saying for sure that He didn't. But I'm telling you this, the text doesn't say that. The text says that He healed these people. People, sadly, are always, unless God changes their hearts, always more interested in their bodies than their souls. That's sad. What are you most concerned about today as you sit here? What are you preoccupied? What do you pray about the most? What do you think about the most? I'm not saying it's wrong for you to care about your health. Some of you have some serious health issues. I understand that. I'm just saying that by nature, unless God's grace works in our lives, we're all about health. Health for our bodies but not help for our souls. Number two, I want you to notice that faith in Christ as a miracle worker and even experiencing a miracle often leaves a person utterly unsaved. You can have faith in Christ as a miracle worker and go to hell. These people had what is sometimes called miracle faith. They looked to Him as the one who could heal him. It doesn't mean that they looked to Him as the one who would pay for their sins. And the reason why I'm quite confident that these people, in large part, were not truly converted is because of what we read in Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to save you the time. Just listen to these words, and I'll tell you where they're found. They're found in chapter 11 and verse 21. He's talking, and He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! That's where He was. In that, that same area, that's where he'd perform most of the miracles. Listen to what he says. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, 
Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, city of homosexuality, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So see, you can read that and say, wow, I bet your revival took place there. No, there's no evidence whatsoever that revival took place. You can believe that Jesus is a miracle worker and go to hell. You can even have a miracle wrought in your life and go to hell. Thousands of people were healed by Jesus probably in his lifetime. A small minority of them most likely were truly converted. Don't put confidence in that. Number three, we, like the people of Gennesaret, should be laboring vigorously, passionately, earnestly, fervently, urgently, and untiringly to get our sick and dying friends and neighbors, neighbors near, neighbors far, to our Savior, the great physician. At least, you can say this, even if they didn't have true saving faith, they did something that's exemplary to us. They loved their friends enough to get them to Christ. See what it says? And when they got out of the boat, uh, the people who recognized them, verse 55, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard He was. And wherever He came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored Him. If people can do that for the welfare of someone's body, isn't that a lesson to us that we we should be even more fervent in trying to get our sin, our soul, sin, sick friends to the Savior. So those are just some observations. Now I want to come to the, the main uh, passage that, that I'm most interested in us spending some time with, verses 45 through 52. I've already given you the big picture, so... No one will uh, fault me, will they, for drawing out some spiritual lessons. I have seven, and I'm going to go through them quickly. The first one concerns the prayer life of our Savior. Notice in verse 46, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And he probably prayed for hours. In the Gospel of Mark, there are only three records of Jesus praying. In each case, he prayed at nighttime, and in some cases, virtually all night. And in each case, there was a seeming crisis um, about to take place. But we're told in other Gospels about other times that Jesus prayed. And I just want to remind all of you this morning that our Savior was, was a man of prayer. He prayed frequently. He prayed fervently. He prayed at, for great lengths of time. And in so doing, he was a tremendous example to us about prayer. Just think about this. Here is our sovereign, sinless Savior, the very Son of God, feeling his need to be alone with God to pray. 
Christ needed God's blessing in his life. Christ felt the need for divine assistance and anointing. He spent hours in prayer. He cried aloud in prayer. Sometimes he wept. And we? We don't really need that much prayer. Uh, A little prayer, yeah, especially when we're in deep trouble, but are we men and women of prayer? J.C. Ryle puts it like this. He said, We cannot work miracles as he did. In this he stands alone. But we can walk in his steps in the matter of private devotion. If we have the spirit of adoption, we can pray. Let us resolve to pray more than we have done hitherto, that is, up until now. Let us strive to make time and place and opportunity for being alone with God. When I read that this week, I felt conviction. Do you and I strive to make time and place and opportunity for being alone with God? And then he goes on to say, Above all, let us not only pray before we attempt to work for God, but pray also after our work is done. He had just fed 5,000, and they wanted to make him a king. And he felt a desperate need to pray. And then one more statement on this from Ryle. He says, Our master's strong crying and tears, his continuing all night in prayer to God, his frequent withdrawal to private places to hold close communion with the Father, are things more... Listen to this, more talked about and admired than imitated. It's easy for us to talk about our Lord's prayer life. What we need to do is imitate it. That's what we need to do. So that's number one. Number two. The second lesson is this. While we are in the middle of our own storm-tossed, turbulent See, and I'm spiritualizing, admittedly. Weary, fatigued, discouraged, and fearful. At that very moment, we need to remember this. Our Savior, our great high priest, is on a higher mountain than the one there in Galilee. He's on a mountain called Mount Zion, according to the book of Hebrews. The city of God, the new Jerusalem. And you know what he's doing there? Among other things, he is seeing our plight and he is making effectual intercession for us. That is to say, he is praying for us in a way that God blesses and hears and answers. And we need to keep that perspective that he's praying for us. Paul tells the Christians in Rome, that He ever lives to make intercession for us. The Apostle to the Hebrews says the same thing. Therefore, He is able to save unto the uttermost because He's ever making intercession for them. And I just want to give you that word of encouragement. Some of you are going through some deep struggles right now. And you feel in in your own kind of way that, you know what? I'm in the midst of a storm. And where is Christ? Where is He? Probably those disciples said, oh, if only Jesus were with us. But you know, up in the mountain, and the text tells us that he saw them. Now, 
Are we to understand that, that he saw them with the physical eyes? Maybe. Maybe. But at nighttime, in the dark, several miles away, they were themselves four or five miles out into the lake. How far can you see individuals? Can you see, have, you, have you seen anybody lately four or five miles away? An indiv- uh, have you seen a little boat four or five miles away? Big ship, maybe. Perhaps we're to understand that he saw his disciples with the eyes of omniscience and with that heart of love and compassion. He knew exactly where they were and exactly what was happening. His omniscience enables him to see us at all time. And if we but had faith, our faith would enable us to see him at the right hand of the Father praying. So when you're in your storm-tossed little boat and life is fearful, and you just wish Jesus were nearby, why don't you just take a moment and say, but I know where He is, and I know what He's doing. He's at the right hand of God the Father, He's ruling His kingdom, and among other things, He's making intercession for me. That's comforting. That's what we need. Third thing that I want to share with you, by way of a spiritual observation, is this. It has to do with the fear of the disciples uh, with regard to Uh, the spirit world and ghosts. And I want to submit to you that the fear of the disciples in thinking they saw a ghost, an apparition, a specter, was really um, quite unreasonable. The fear was unreasonable. Many people believed in ghosts and spirits. Their fear was unreasonable not because spirits don't exist. Listen to me carefully. Spirits do exist. But not the spirits of our fellow human beings who have died. They're not going around as ghosts. People who die, their souls go either to heaven or to hell. But there is a real spiritual world. And the spirits that are still operative are either demons, fallen angels, or unfallen angels. They are spirits, we're told in the book of Hebrews. And the spirits in the form of demons are always around us. The demon spiritual world is real. And those spirits are no more dangerous if they should take on some human form. And I'm not suggesting that they do, but the disciples thought it did. They saw someone. It looked like a person. You can't see a spirit. And they were fearful as if If a spirit took on a form, that would make that spirit more dangerous. Really? Why? We live in a spirit world all the time. If anything, I think it could be argued that a spirit not taking the form of a human being would be more dangerous because we would be less aware of his presence. But the point is this. Should the disciples have been, should they have been fearful of a ghost or of a spirit? The answer is no. Because even if they thought it was spirit, someone should have enough sense and enough recollection to say, hey guys, I think it was just a couple of days ago, you know, Jesus sent us out, gave us authority over demons. Didn't you cast some out, Peter? John, how about you? Did you cast some out? They had all been casting out demons. Christ had given them authority over that demon demonic realm 
And it was a time to pray. And it was a time to trust. But instead, they were overcome with fear. I do want to make just a comment, though, before I pass on from this point, that even though believers don't need to fear demons, we don't need to fear demons. Our Savior is sovereign over them, and they can't, they can't control our lives. I don't know how they tempt us and all that. That's a mysterious world. But they can't rule us. We don't ever have to obey the suggestions of a demon, ever. But I want to say this to you who are not Christians. It's okay for you to be fearful of demons. You should be fearful of demons because they want to damn your soul. And they're laboring to damn your soul. You're not getting personal visits from the one and only devil, Lucifer himself. You're getting visits from him through the demons. And if, you, if believers can be afraid of demons, surely unbelievers ought to be afraid of demons. And let me just give you this little thought. How would you like to spend an eternity with demons? Listen to what Bishop Hall said. I've been loving Bishop Hall. He says, But oh, the deplorable condition of reprobate souls! If but the imagined sight of one of these spirits of darkness can so daunt the heart of those who are free from their power, that is true Christians, what a terror shall it be to live perpetually in the sight, yes, under the torture of thousands of legions of millions of devils. Oh, the madness of willful sinners that will needs run themselves headlong into so dreadful a damnation. If you're not a believer, it's fine with me if you fear the devil and fear demons. Maybe God will just graciously use that to send you to the one who's sovereign over them and you get saved. That's the third. My fourth point is this. Often God allows us to face difficult and dangerous and discouraging trials for lengthy periods of time. Why? For the purpose of making us desperate for His rescue. And then, in the fourth watch of the night, I told you that's between 3 a.m. and 6, in our darkest hour, He comes to us. But this coming is not one minute too early, and it isn't one minute too late. Jesus was timing this perfectly. He knew what was going on. He came to His disciples at the proper time when they were desperate for Him. And once they realized who they were dealing with, how relieved they were. First they thought He was a ghost. And then He comes to them and He says to them, Be of good cheer. Ego me. I am. Or if you will, it is I. Don't be afraid. I just want to say a word about this ego in me I can't camp on this like I would like to do you remember when Moses was being called to be the deliverer of the old Israel he says who shall I say sent me he said I am I am that I am tell them I am ego in me send you that was a theophany. That was an appearance of God to Moses. And God was revealing Himself as the ever-present, eternal God. 
And through the Scriptures, that formula is used when God made special appearances to comfort and deliver His people. He called Himself, I Am. No wonder seven times in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I Am. And in this case, when His disciples were so fearful, He says, Be of good cheer. I Am. It is I. And I want to suggest to all of us that in the midst of our most fearful moments, even if it's the fourth watch of the night, we simply need to recognize that all we need is I am. We need that person. This is the divinity. Christ is declaring his divinity. And all we need in our darkest hour is to know the presence of our Savior. And I'm simply saying to you, He doesn't come when we want Him to come. He comes when He knows He should come. And He's always right on time. And then fifthly, I want to point out how prevalent, how insidious, how forgetful, how ungrateful, how inexcusable, and how wicked is our unbelief. I multiplied adjectives. Our unbelief is prevalent. It's insidious. It's just in us. It leads us to be forgetful. It causes us to be ungrateful. It causes us to be inexcusable. It is a form of wickedness. And yes, these men were struggling with unbelief at this moment. And the unbelief was producing fear. And that's what it does in our lives. And I want you to see that Jesus is not pleased with that. When he gets into the boat and recognizes that they were astounded, John tells us why they were astounded. Look again, please, at verse 52. Here's why they were astounded. It wasn't like, isn't it beautiful to see again what our Savior has done? I knew he was going to come through like this. We've been praying in the boat. We've been fearful, but we knew he was going to come. Oh, Lord Jesus, we knew you were coming. No. They were astounded at what they saw. They saw somebody walking on water. And they saw him enable Peter to walk on water. And they suddenly saw the wind stop. And they suddenly found themselves ashore. And they were astounded. And I want to say to you again that there's a sense in which we shouldn't be astounded any longer when we see God do for us again and again and again and again and again what only God can do. Don't be astounded. That's that's a slap in the face of Christ. When you do something well that you've done many times for people and they've seen you do it, and somehow you just do it one more time, say, Wow, I didn't know you could do that. That's amazing. And you want to say to them, "I, I think I've done this 15, 20 times for you. Why are you astounded now? Because I don't get it. And I keep forgetting And John tells us, Mark tells us, that they were astounded because they did not understand about the loaves. What's that mean? It means that they didn't get it just a few hours before. I don't fully understand this, but I know that there's more of me in them than I want to acknowledge. And there's more of them in me than I want to acknowledge. I don't know what happened. They knew that there were only two fish and five loaves. They knew that. 
And they saw our Savior giving them more and more fish and more and more bread and more fish and more bread until 5,000 plus people were filled. And they have to gather up 12 basketfuls of fragments. They saw a miracle take place before their eyes. They saw the sovereignty of Christ. They saw the power of Christ. They saw the goodness of Christ. But when they see Him walking in the water, wow! How can you do that? They shouldn't have been astounded. And we should not be astounded when our Savior does great things. It's a form of unbelief. And I just want to remind us that it's insidious. We live with it. Later he chides them again. I, I mentioned this passage last week. I can't turn us there. But in chapter 8, we're going to find that again. He was talking about leaven or yeast. And the disciples started thinking about bread. And they said, oh boy, we don't have any bread. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, how many fish did you have? And how many pieces of bread? When I multiplied it and fed 5,000, they said two and five. Okay. Okay, would you just think about that for a while? Unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. It's prevalent. It's insidious. And I want us to start thinking about our unbelief the way it's described here. Verse 52 says, They didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. I don't mean that means hardened in the same way that wicked people's hearts are hardened, but it still says they were hardened. When's the last time you looked at your unbelief and said, you know, it's rooted in a hard heart? I'm a hard-hearted person. My problem with faith is my hard-heartedness. It is. It is. Because when our hearts are tender and we see what God has done, it registers with us and we remember it and we act upon it and we build upon it and our lives should be forever changed by it. But when we go through the goodness of God repeatedly and we still distrust Him and are overwhelmed with fear, that unbelief is rooted in hardness of heart. Call it what the Bible calls it. Take it to God and say, God, please forgive me for my unbelief because mine is just like the disciples. It's rooted in hardness of heart. Soften my heart. Forgive me for my unbelief. Number six. And now what I want to do is just quickly conclude by taking us for a brief moment to what Nathan read for us. I'm not going to turn to um, John 6. Excuse me, Matthew 14. Remember he said, Matthew 14 is the only one who tells us about Peter. Just two more lessons that have to do with faith and unbelief. Wasn't it amazing that Peter said what he said? Would you have done that? Just seconds before he was scared to death. They were all fearful. And Jesus says, it is I. You're looking at, I am. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, would you please bid me, command me to come to you? Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to come to you. Oh no, he's smarter than that. You can't come to him like that. He doesn't say, Jesus, would you come to me? This is looking real good. Come, keep coming and climb in with us. No. He doesn't say, Jesus, would you pray that somehow I will be able to come to you? As if the solution to that 
challenge was outside of Christ. He says, Jesus, if you tell me to come, I'll come. I'll be able to come. You gave us power over the demons. You gave us power over disease. You're demonstrating your sovereignty over nature right now. Would you just tell me to come? Because if you tell me to come, I'll be able to walk on water. And Jesus says, come. And he gets out of the boat and he steps on the water just as Christ was walking on as if it were pavement. Beautiful picture of faith. Only moments before it was unbelief. And then what happens? By the way, this is my point. When we are sure of a divine warrant to do something, in this case, come. That's a warrant. What is faith afraid of attempting? Is there anything that faith should be afraid of attempting if you believe you have biblical warrant from God? Don't you think that our, our lack of attempting great things for God is probably pretty indicative of our lack of faith? Go figure. The more faith, the more attempts to do things that otherwise would be utterly impossible, to do things that would be dangerous, to do things that would be fearful. It's pretty dangerous to try to walk on water. But when you have a biblical warrant... Your faith makes you bold and courageous. And we want to be like Peter. As long as our eyes are fixed upon our Savior, we won't sink. But you see what happened. Now I'm to my last point. You see a a mixture of faith and unbelief in Peter. We already saw his unbelief because he was with all the disciples and they were all scared to death. Then we see faith. Well, what is it, Peter? Unbelief or faith? Right now it's faith. And he's walking. He's walking on water. And then the Bible tells us that he he took his eyes off of Jesus, or at least his concentration, and his mind started thinking about the wind. The wind was very strong. And in a sense, he was looking at what can't really be seen, but he could hear it and feel it, and he was being confronted by it. And he got his eyes off the Savior, and what happened to him? You know what happened. He started sinking. And then what do you see next? Faith. Faith. Lord, save me! Jesus reaches out His hand and He pulls him up and Jesus says to him in a kind but convicting way, Oh, Peter, you of so little faith. Your faith was so brief, Peter. You were scared before you knew who it was. You had faith to ask me to give you the power. You stepped out on your faith. You were walking by faith. And suddenly you're overcome with unbelief. And then your unbelief is followed by faith. And you call upon me again. What a mixture. What a mixture. And you know what your name is? Even if you're a woman. And I'll tell you what my name is. Your name and my name is Peter. But at least he... He had enough courage, enough faith to ask something very bold. We ought to be asking some really, really bold stuff of God. And we ought to look into our souls and say, God, I'm so much like Peter. Except I'm not even enough like him with regard to faith. I need you to give me more faith. Well, that's it. 
I just want to conclude by saying to you, what a wonderful Savior we have, dear people. I've already told you how to get saved. If you didn't get it, I'm going to tell you once more. You're a lawbreaker, and so am I, and that makes us sinners. And God is holy, and all sin has to be paid for, and either we pay for it or we find a substitute. And the only substitute who can pay for our sins, if we don't pay for it, is Jesus, the righteous. He came to live the life that we've fail to live and to die to pay for our sins. And the good news of the gospel is that if we feel and see our sinfulness and call upon Him to pay for our sins and to give us His righteousness, we're saved forever. And once again, I want to invite you to call upon this wonderful, glorious Savior. This is a beautiful Savior. <laughs> this, is a, this is a trustworthy Savior. I want a, I want a Savior who can walk on water. I want a Savior who can say to me, I am the eternal God. I am the ever-present eternal God. And I want a Savior who can give me ability to do what I cannot do on my own. And then when I fail to do as I ought, I can still call on Him and say, Lord, save me! And Jesus didn't say, Peter, I'm not going to save you now. You asked me to give you the power to come to me. I gave you the power. You took your eyes off of me. You should sink. Your unbelief should not be rewarded. I'm not going to reach out my hand. (laughs) No. This Savior that I present to you is not only omnipotent, and omnipresent and eternal. He's so good. He's so kind. He's so forgiving. He's so patient. He gets in the boat with his disciples. And we don't read that he spent the rest of the morning rebuking them for their unbelief. It was on to more business. And he's working with his disciples. And he's working with his disciples. And we're like those disciples. We don't get it. We only get it partially. I know that Matthew's account said, they said, truly, this is the Son of God. But if you think that was the end of their unbelief, you got another thing coming. Because they are, were like us. We are like them. We need a Savior like this. And I offer him to you this morning as a representative of him. He is yours for the taking. And he will be that kind of Savior to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another passage of Scripture so rich in instruction. And we confess that we never do Scripture the justice it really deserves. And we know there is much more gold in this mind. And we pray that you will help us to mine it. Mine some of it today. Go back to Mark 6, Matthew 14, John 6, and think more about what our Savior did. Lord, forgive us of our unbelief. We feel many times that we're more unbelieving than the disciples. Grant that our unbelief will be replaced by faith. And be gracious today to any here who have no faith at all. Grant them faith and may they call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and begin a life of faith.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.